Hello, friends. Welcome. I'm Andrew Hicks, and you're listening to the Text and Context Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Uh, Oren, you know, I've always said that uh, in the churches of Christ, you show up once and you're a guest. You show up twice and you better be ready to do something. I mean, uh, you know, you, sh- you show up and then the next Sunday it's like, well, you're here now. You got to serve communion or say a prayer or read scripture. Uh, that's just the way it is. So I have been personally interested in the study of world religions. Um, I had the opportunity when I was in South Carolina, I taught at a, a little Christian school And I had the opportunity to teach a little unit on world religion. And I think it's really important because I think it makes us a better neighbor. And I think it makes us able to carry the message of Jesus out uh, with with more grace and more generosity to other people to understand where they come from. And um, I I think it it does for me anyway. It makes me a kinder, more generous person to those that are are different from me. Because often one of the reasons that we're ugly to other people is because we're afraid and we don't understand them. and that's not a good way to take Jesus to others. Uh, and so uh, being a good neighbor to others is, is one of those reasons I like studying world religion. But also like because it forces you to ask some really difficult questions, especially as a devout follower of Jesus. Like you're studying for a few minutes and then already you start asking the big questions. So you start asking questions really like the most notorious question in world religion is, so what about the pious of other faiths? Is pious a word that we use still? Because Hannah was like saying that's not a, the devout, the the really good person of the other faith, a really faithful believer, faithful follower. Sure. That's the word pious, faithful, devout. So what do you do about the really devout of a different faith? So for example, you're working and you meet a Muslim man who is a really, really good person and you love and respect that person but he doesn't believe like you believe. That's tough. It's easier whenever it's like, well, he's a terrible person, it's fine. But whenever you meet really good people, it forces you to ask tough questions like that. So is God gonna send him to hell? It's the question you start asking. And I think there's some merit to dwelling on those questions, obviously, like I think we should. But also I get nervous whenever that's what takes up most of our time and thought. Because ultimately, like that's just not my question to answer. God is God and that's on him. But I think another question we need to deal with is what do we do with the unpious of our faith? Like we're so worried about the pious of everybody else's faith. What about the unpious of our faith? What about the unfaithful of our faith? I think we need to be more concerned about them. And you can already see where I'm going with this. Jonah was really concerned about the devout of the other faiths. He wasn't as concerned about the unfaithful of his faith. So if you will, look with me in Jonah. And I had, uh, I had us read some of this this morning, so I didn't have to read the entire story this morning, you know. So, Susie, thank you. That was, that was good reading. You had really a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of character to the reading. I like that. I like that a lot. So I'm going to start in verse 7. Um, this is right after the captain wakes Jonah up while he's sleeping under, under uh, in the bottom of the boat. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Well, I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
And then the men were even more afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. And already we read that the, the men try to um, row back to shore and then they can't. So they throw Jonah in and they're praying to Jonah's God. Please forgive us. And then they convert to the faith of Israel. And they're offering sacrifices and making vows to the God of Israel rather than to their gods who they called out to and it didn't work. And so it's really interesting. Everybody who you think would do one thing in this story does the opposite. So you have the pious pagans and the petty prophet. You with me? That's really why I wanted to use the word pious so that I could get that good alliteration going. Let's be real. That's why I wanted to use that word. Okay. But the pious pagans and the petty prophet. You got the faithful unbelievers and the unfaithful believer. All the people you think should do one thing, do the opposite. And it's just really ironic. Jonah's supposed to be the one who's in reverent fear of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And instead, it's the pagans. They're the ones that are like, we feel bad to take your life and throw you into the sea. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should try to do something else. And then even after they do, they say, well, we're going to offer our, 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 our hearts to you. They, they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They make vows. Now, to make matters worse, and I didn't notice this until I started studying Jonah in a little more depth. If you go to chapter 2 when Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, I think he throws the sailors under the bus. So if you go to the bottom, near the end of chapter 2, verse 8, he's praying, he's praying, and then he says, Well, as for those who worship vain idols, they forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. In other words, yeah, that's great and all, but let's be real, it's not going to last. They're just pagans. I mean, come on. They're not even sacrificing in the temple. Whenever this whole shenanigan is over, I'm going to be back in the temple and I'm going to sacrifice like you're supposed to do the right way. I mean, you hear it, right? Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And it's that last part that really gets me. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. It's like, yeah, Jonah, deliverance belongs to the Lord, not to you. Quit trying to tell God who he can and can't have mercy on. He's God. He'll have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will forgive whom he will forgive. And yeah, maybe their worship is ad hoc at best. It's just kind of they're scrambling to put something together. They're offering a sacrifice on a ship. Surely it's not the best sacrifice that was ever offered as far as practice and routine, but it was heartfelt. And it seems that that matters to God, but it was heartfelt more than Jonah's uh, voice of thanksgiving in the temple the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> I think he really resents the conversion of the sailors. I think he's throwing them under the bus. Ah, it won't last. Well, in other words, um, Jonah's heart is hard. He's not open to the movement of God, and he's a prophet. Whereas these pagans, they're open to the movement of God, and they just learned his name a few minutes ago. But even they are open to his movement. Uh, the irony in Jonah, it, it runs all through the book of Jonah. The whole thing is extremely ironic. Uh, so, for example, he gets to Nineveh in chapter 3, and he preaches to the Ninevites. He preaches a seven-word sermon in Hebrew. In English, it's eight. Tomato, tomato. I, I mean, bear with me. Like, that just doesn't seem like the most heartfelt sermon. Okay, if I got up here and only preached seven words, I'd probably be fired. Like, you with me? Like, that's just not very heartfelt. Plus... It's a three-day journey across, and he doesn't even go a day and a half in. He goes a day in, preaches the sermon, that's it. 
Like, it feels like he didn't do the full tour of Nineveh. You know what I'm saying? And it's seven words. But God works with that anyway. And the entire town repents. It says even the farm animals are putting on sackcloth and ashes and fasting. Even the cows are more faithful than Jonah in this story. I mean, even the chickens and the goats, all the animals are more faithful than Jonah is. I mean, even the the whale obeys God's word to go swallow him. Whereas Jonah, uh, a prophet who should get the memo but doesn't. In other words, all the people who are supposed to be the bad guys are the good guys. And all the people who are supposed to be the good guys are the bad guys. All of our assumptions are turned upside down. You would think that those wicked Ninevites would be the ones that uh, are so hateful to God, but instead, throughout the story, they're the ones with the most open hearts to God. And in fact, their repentance, sackcloth and ashes, that's a uniquely Israelite thing. They're better Israelites than the Israelites. Terrible, terrible. Shame on you, Jonah. You know, this all reminds me of, uh, of what Jesus embodied. That over and over again, those who should get it are often the ones that don't. And those who shouldn't get it are often the ones that do. Often the ones who should get it are the ones that overcomplicate it and make the obedience way too complicated. They get caught up in all their rules and regulations, technicalities. Well, Jesus didn't really mean that, and here's why. The Levites, the priests, and the rabbis, they walk by on the other side of the road. But that heretic Samaritan... At least he loved somebody, stopped, went out of his way to care for another person. You know, as a a theology student and as an aspiring scholar, so I'm working on my master's of divinity and I love studying in the classroom. There's a part of me that wants to cringe as I say this, but I got to say, the longer that I am a Christian, the more I, I am becoming convinced that God would rather have the soft heart of a heretic than the hard heart of an orthodox person. I think he'd rather us not have it all together in every last respect. Maybe I'm not the most articulate in every aspect of my theology, but at least I'm open to God. I think he'd rather have that than for me to have everything figured out and I'm ready to tell you about it and to not be open to him. Man, I hope my professors don't hear me say that. (laughs) Because especially, I mean, like even in our fellowship, the Churches of Christ, right? Like we have emphasized the mind. And, and that's a good thing. Like we have, we, we're, we're known for studying the Bible. I like that about us. I like my tribe. I'm a Bible nerd. I'm with you. But also all the head with no heart just leaves us as a brain on a stick. And God didn't come to convert brains on sticks. He came to convert persons with head, hearts, and hands. The whole thing, a full human person, which means our heart has to be involved In Acts 10, and this is why I had us read this story this morning, there's an interesting connection between the story of Jonah and the story of Cornelius. And it might might, uh, escape your view at first, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's this. Where is Peter whenever they come to find him? He's in Joppa, which is the same port where Jonah went to find a ship going to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. You see that? Jonah's having trouble with the thought of taking the message to the Ninevites. Peter's having trouble with the idea of taking the message to the Gentiles. We're always hesitant to let other people in on our business. 
It's always fun to be in the in-group, and then the funnest part about being in the in-group is to shun those in the out-group, right? The best part is to be on the inside and to say, sorry, you're not, you're not invited to the secret club. And sadly, a lot of religion and faith can turn into, well, I'm in the secret club, and you're not invited. I've got it, and you don't. Sorry. <laughs> I've never been to a church like that before. I'm sure you've never known of Christians like that before. I'm being facetious. We all do. We all do. There's a saying in exercise circles uh, that the only rep that matters is the one you can't do. Maybe the only person that really matters to be invited into this faith is the one that we didn't want to take it to. If a prophet doesn't get a free pass just because he's a prophet, I don't think we're going to get a free pass just because we're followers of Christ, just because we grew up in the church, just because I know all the Bible Bowl answers, got an A-plus on my Bible Bowl quiz. I don't think that's going to be it. I don't think there's a Bible SAT on the Day of Judgment. Highest score gets in, honorable mention maybe, the rest sorry. I don't think that's how it goes. It's part of the reason that God's love and mercy is so terrifying to Jonah, because to paraphrase Shakespeare, there is just far more to his love and mercy than is dreamt of in his philosophy. There is so much more to God's love and mercy than is dreamt of in most of our philosophies. Um, there was a book that came out a while back. It's a little bit before my time, just tad, but it's called Love Wins by Rob Bell. Uh, Rob Bell was like this megachurch pastor up in Michigan somewhere. He was all hip and cool, had written a bunch of books. And then he wrote this book, and then he got really blackballed. Because in that book, it had a lot of good things to say in the book, frankly. But they all fixated on one aspect of the book and forgot the other parts. And that one aspect was he basically comes out as like a universalist. That in the end, all knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, we'll all be saved, we'll all go to heaven. He had some other good things to say in the book. He really did. But they fixated on that point. And so he got blackballed a lot. Um, and so it was like a big discussion whenever it came out because he was, he was like a big deal. He'd written a lot of books, done a lot of video series. You know, the youth groups everywhere were using his NUMA series where he would uh, teach. And um, it was a big deal. So people are like talking about like, oh, if you read Love Wins, oh, that's crazy. Sad. He's a heretic now. Great. And um, I heard a soundbite from Andy Stanley, a different preacher. And he was talking about whenever this book came out and people would you know, like, be trying to talk to him as the pastor be like, oh, can you believe Rob Bell is so sad? Well, and he said he eventually thought it was kind of weird that people were that disturbed by the idea that God's love was that big. And so he said what he ended up doing in the long run was just to make people a little uneasy. Whenever they would say that to him, he'd listen and then he'd go, yeah. But don't you hope he's right though? <laughs> and then people would just be like, uh, I guess so. And I think Stanley makes a good point. We can get so caught up in the articulation of the doctrine, which don't get me wrong, I want to do. But also, like, don't you wish it's true? Like, maybe Jonah was terrified by God's love because it was just a little bit more open than he was willing to admit it was. Maybe it's not as open as Rob Bell would have us believe, but hey, it, it's probably more open than my limited little mind can understand. We can always try to put limits on God's love and mercy, but he moves in ways that are often confusing and confounding. And just the time I think I got him figured out, he prefers that pious pagan to the petty prophet. I mean, doesn't he know Jonah grew up going to Saturday school? He knows all the answers. 
Oh, he prefers the soft heart of the pagan. So I ask you a scary question. It's one that I've been asking myself as I prepared for this. Where's your heart at? Is it open? Is it willing to let God have his way? Even if it seems a little strange at times? Because if we're forced to put ourselves in this story, would we be the self-righteous Jonah? Or would we be the open pagans? Because the prophet of all people is not the one commended to us to imitate in this story. It's the pagans. Because they have an open heart. Would I be the Pharisee that's standing there praying, saying, Lord, thank you I'm not like that tax collector over there. He really needs to get his stuff together. Or would I be the tax collector that's sitting there beating my breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Depends on the day, I suppose. But more often than not, I'm probably not in the one that I wish I was. Our head knowledge is really important. It is. Deep Bible study and deep textual study is important. Doctrine is important. Yes, absolutely. Theology nerd, Bible nerd, all the way. Please. But we also need to get our hands dirty and serve other people. Our hands matter too. And to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, head, hands, and heart remain, but the greatest of these is heart that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is likened unto it, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. You can have all the right answers, but if we don't love, and if we don't have a soft and open heart to what God wants to do, then what does it matter?